Well, today we are going to tell, it's our third week of sharing what we're calling spooky Bible stories. We've done this for three weeks now, kind of all leading into today. Today was the final one. We're going to wrap it up today with a conversation. If I only had one story to tell these last three weeks, it would be this one. This would be the one. Because, uh, and by the way, this would be the day, because it's October 31st. So of all the spooky days to, to notice in the year, this is, this is the one, right? So uh, this will be the story I would tell. Because unlike the last two weeks where the story kind of was scary or spooky in the Bible, but it ended up kind of good, or it ended very good, today's story is, I think, the spookiest, partly because it does not end well for the people. It's one of those scary stories that doesn't turn out well for the people in the story. And so that's why we saved it for last, because it doesn't end well. Spooky Bible story. So two weeks ago, we talked about um, the monster in the graveyard. The monster in the graveyard. Last week, we discussed the ghost on the water. Today, we get to talk a little bit about the hand. The hand, okay? The hand is our subject today. Now, when... I was going to do this. I was going to put a graphic or a little trailer on the screen. Do y'all remember the 1960-something movie called The Hand? Does anybody else remember that movie from the 60s called The Hand? Okay. The sad part is, is most of you who are raising your hands are a bit older than me, and I'm also remembering you. I, I'm seeing which crowd I, I'm more and more belonging to as time goes on here. We, we remember this movie. My defense, I was a child. So I was young. My dad was watching. My dad had that privilege of watching shows on TV that somehow we weren't always allowed to watch because it was not fit for us, you know, or he just was watching TV and we were doing other things. So I snuck in one day and he was watching, apparently, I don't know if he was, he's probably channel flipping between Detroit Tigers games because he was a fan. But anyhow, the hand was on. And I remember that scene. If you watch the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It's that scene where the hand the guy's driving his car and it's in the back seat of the car and it's just like it's, like a, it's like a hand that's like down to here or something. It's just crawling at him. Like a, you do to your kids when you're trying to be silly, you know? But it's just a hand. And looking back on it, it was so cheesy, okay? But when I was young, it was pretty terrifying, okay? So today we're going to talk about the hand and it is a Bible story, but here's the thing. Um, it's not a movie. It's not fake. It really happened, and it really is that scary. So in order to set this up, I've got to tell you the backstory for a little while. So allow me to back, rewind and go back words a ways to tell you what's going on. The story is found in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a young man who, uh, as a teenager, found himself uh, far from home, as we'll mention momentarily. And um, uh, he actually wrote his book called Daniel Man, Far From Home. It was interesting. No, but Daniel, he wrote a book and it's full of adventures and stories. And at the end of, but not only adventures and stories, it's full of prophecy. If you want some good old-fashioned prophecies that have come true, you should read Daniel's phenomenal stuff. Things that have already come to pass that he prophesied before they happened and things that are yet to come. Uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all did a great job with prophecy. And Daniel's full of stories of adventure, but also stories of prophecy. Anyhow, the story of Daniel is he was a teenage boy when the Babylonian Empire came and conquered their city and the, the nation of Israel entered what they called the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity was a 70-year period that was foretold by the prophet Jeremiah where the nation of Israel were taken 
they, they were already a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom had already fallen to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonian empire and went away into exile for 70 years. And the Babylonian empire was a, a world power that was emerging and it was led by a man whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. Now you need to understand just a little bit of background to appreciate the story we're gonna tell today. Because Babylon had been around for over a thousand years, a bit longer than that, but a thousand years before this story, Babylon was already a, a city that was built like most cities are built near a body of water. This particular city of Babylon was built next to the Euphrates River, but in time, the Babylonians began to make a network alliances with all the cities around them, and they began to form a conglomeration of power. And then they eventually built walls around this bigger area of cities and made it into a giant city that called Babylon. They actually, it was amazing what they did. Uh, the, the, the nation was powerful. It kind of faded for a while. And it was quiet for almost a thousand years after a kind of an initial surge. But during that time, they were, they were hard at work. And they did something that was really amazing by any standard. They built, the city began to grow into sections on both sides of the Euphrates River, and they built a wall around the entire thing, including through the Euphrates River and two spots to surround all of the city of Babylon. So they built this wall to be impenetrable. I mean, this was a powerful, powerful wall. And it was like a you picture like you've watched Lord of the Rings or something when they try to conquer the big strongholds. And it's just almost impossible to get in there. This was this impenetrable city, uh, impenetrable city. It was just built. This wall went through the Euphrates River, not to the bottom, but deep enough to where you couldn't possibly get under it. The mighty Euphrates ran through it against the wall, pushed under the wall, through the city, outside the other wall. It was just a powerful force. And um, they, um, they kept them fed with water and so they would never have a drought. And it was just, it was a powerful city built so well for defense. Anyhow, about this time in history, about 600 years before Christ, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes to power and the Babylonian empire has just grown. It's getting very big. And they, they go on a conquest rampage where they begin to, to, to conquer other nations and cities and, and, and just take their wealth and bring it back to Babylon and make Babylon the most opulent, rich place around. Not only would they take the wealth from these nations, but they would take the young people. If, the young, if there were young people, guys and girls, who were young and attractive and sharp, they would, they would harvest them for their own city. They would take them, and the girls, they would, they would be sent off for the guys, and the guys, they would take this with them, and they would train them to serve in the palace. The girls would serve in different ways, uh, maybe less uh, desirable, but the guys would be taught the language. Honestly, the guys were made eunuchs most of the time. They were eunuchized, which is a whole horrible thing too. They would take them into the city. They would raise them to teach them the language of Babylon. They would teach them the customs and they would kind of raise them to be kind of the servants in the royal city. And it was, it was really a smart move because the king of Babylon wanted to have the best and the brightest in the city of Babylon. So when people came there, young, bright, sharp, growing, adult people who were capable and sharp, it, it made the city look beautiful and seem intelligent and intellectual and ahead of its game. It was just a whole move that Babylon was doing. Well, one day they marched on Jerusalem. They conquered the city. They tore down the walls around Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. 
They had already been given a glimpse during King Hezekiah's reign of the treasures that they kept in Jerusalem. Because unlike other nations that held, held their wealth elsewhere, Israel was kind of a religious nation. They worshiped, they were supposed to worship God. And so their temple was where their wealth was kept. So the king of Babylon sends his people to march on the temple, destroy it completely, and take all that wealth back to Babylon, killed a lot of people, took the young people captive as was his custom. And amongst those captives was a teenage boy named Daniel and some of his friends that are mentioned in the story. And you can say, why did God let the city of Jerusalem fall to the Babylonian Empire this way? And this is just background, but I think there's two important reasons to mention as we get going here. One is because God was using this to correct his people because Israel had gone far from God. He had brought them out of slavery. They were slaves in Egypt, and God had brought them out of slavery and through miraculous events brought them to this promised land. He promised their, their great ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He brought them back. He established them against all odds as a nation, and they were a testimony to God's power. They were a testimony to the, to the mighty power of Yahweh. And as they grew as a nation by God's hands and as a witness to the other nations around them who worshiped false gods and idols that were territorial, that there was one true God overall who was the maker of everything. As they were a testimony of that for many years, they began to drift from God. They began to go far away, practice horrible things and do horrible things in, in, in worshiping uh, pagan practices and mistreatment of others. They began, we went so far from God that God would send prophets to warn them and bring them back, but they would not listen. And eventually, through men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, God told them, your days are numbered. I'm going to send captivity to you. And it won't be forever, but it's going to be for a whole bunch of years. It was a seven, when Jerusalem fell, as Jeremiah predicted, they went for, for 70 years into captivity before many of them returned back from Babylon later on to rebuild the temple. So this was a corrective move by God to bring his people back to faith in him because they had gotten proud and turned from him and he used it to kind of realign them. But there's another reason I believe that people like Daniel were brought in these horrible conditions to Babylon and they conquered Jerusalem. And that was because the king of Babylon understood well, we understand now the king of Babylon was the beginning of a new era in history. Now I know some of you don't care about history maybe, but if you do, you might know this and you should know this probably, the world kind of goes through seasons where, you know, there's, you know, you know, kind of this era of world history, that era. This became the era of world empires. Like there were strong cities before Babylon, but nothing like Babylon. There was Egypt before, and regionally it was important to Israel, so we know about Egypt, and we, there was Assyria. But, but Babylon became kind of a world empire of that part of the world that's written about and kept in our history books. Babylon became like an empire, the first of its kind. Um, actually, the king of Babylon had a dream one day where Daniel prophesied all the coming empires, and, and he, it was signified as the head of gold, kind of the beginning of this era of world empires. And, the, and so the Babylon was that. And after them came the Cyrus the Great and the Persian Empire. After that came the Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great led the Greek Empire into power. After that came the Roman Empire and all its different Caesars. And so on. But, but, but Babylon's kind of the beginning point. And so right at the beginning of this era of history, not only does God use this time to correct his people who'd gone far from him, but he also inserts into Babylon, into this new world power, 
this gold head, so to speak. He brings in Daniel. He brings in the, the Hebrew children. He puts them there to be a testimony to the king himself of who he was so that they would recognize that there's not just a bunch of gods territorially and ours are more powerful, but there is a God who is monotheistic deity, creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh, the God of Israel we worship. So Daniel's there and, and, and he does his job. Daniel takes a stand for his faith as a young man gets the king's attention, interprets dreams for the king, gets the king's attention. Uh, his, his Hebrew friends take a stand. Get, the king has revelation after revelation. Nebuchadnezzar has revelation after revelation that God, the God of Israel, is bigger than anything he's ever encountered before. This is the true God. And Nebuchadnezzar was kind of learning. He was kind of learning, but in a way, he wasn't. He was still proud and giving himself the credit for what God raised him up to do. So one night, and this is where we get to the first of our two parts of the story. One night, he has a really bad dream. It was Taco Tuesday. He ate too many. He had a really bad dream. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He's terrified. He ends up calling for Daniel because Daniel was known to interpret dreams for him. And, and says, Daniel, what does my dream mean? And Daniel hears the dream and he kind of gets scared. And he says, King, I hope this dream is not for you, but apparently it is. I hope it's for your enemies, though. And he says to the king, God is about to do a hard thing to you. He's been showing you who he is. He's been showing you that he's there and that he put you here. But you refuse to listen and you're full of pride. And he, Daniel actually says to him, you mistreat the poor. And you're a wicked king. But God gave you your power and God's about to humble you. He's about to make you lose your mind. You're going to become like crazy, like a wild animal for a while until you figure out that God gives you and God can, God can bring you into power and God can take it right away just that fast. He's warning you. So please, King, if there's any hope at all, turn from your wicked ways. Believe on God. Put your, honor him. Treat the poor right. All these things. Well, Nebuchadnezzar hears this and maybe he thinks about it for a while, but then he kind of forgets about it. And a year passes by. And at the end of a year, we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. As he, this is Nebuchadnezzar, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. He's just having one of those, man, I'm awesome moments. Like I built this, you know, he's just proud of himself. He's walking around and, 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 and strutting and saying, man, look what I've accomplished in my life. Verse number 31. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way. And here's the key. Until, until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. This is such an interesting thing because again, Nebuchadnezzar is not the first crazy king, uh, wicked king. But he's kind of the first of these world empires and God is getting his attention all this time. And finally, he's brought him to the point where he says, I'm, I'm punching harder. I, I need you to know. I need your history books to, to remember. I need you to learn. 
But the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. And he gives them to anyone he chooses. And that is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar went, and we read the story, he went and lost his mind. This man who was not only a man, but a leader of men, a leader of nations, the most powerful man in, that world, in the world that we knew at that time. Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. Something broke. And he found himself acting crazy. Before long, his people, they don't know what to do. His servants have, have tried to, to corral him and hide him because it's a really bad look for the kingdom when the leader that led you to dominance is like a, acting like a crazy animal. It's a really bad look. And so they kind of hid him away to run the kingdom because this could really weaken what they were trying to do. So they kind of hid him away and kind of ran things. And, 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 he, and he went crazy. He's out, outside, ripping his clothes off, eating grass like a cow, just going nuts for a long period of time. And no one knows what's going on. And it happened. And it was happening until, what? Until he learned the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Well, in time one day, he came back to his senses. One day, his mind returned to him. He found himself in this horrible condition. He began to remember what happened and what he had done and what brought him here. He began to realize how humiliating this has been and, and how fragile the human body and mind can be. And all of a sudden, he says, huh, God was right. And he humbled himself. And he realized to give honor and glory to God. He returned to his kingdom. Fortunately, it was still intact. His, his advisors were no doubt thrilled because they didn't have to keep up the charade anymore because they needed him. And he came back and he was in a, they tested him. He's in his right mind. He's sharp again. They can trust him again. What happened to you? I don't know. And Nebuchadnezzar gets in front of the nation and he doesn't keep it secret. He writes the story down. He proclaims it for everyone to know. He doesn't hide it anymore. He tells, chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar telling the story of his own humility. And here is his conclusion in verse number 37. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true. And he is able to. To humble the proud. So he has this moment. He has this moment where he comes to realize who God is and who he is in the grand scheme of things, even though he was a world empire leader. It's a powerful moment. And Daniel chapter 4 ends with that note right there. And the very next verse is Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. Let me read it to you before we pause. The next verse, Daniel 5 and verse 1, says this. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Now, those words, many years later, is just kind of like one of those things where you skip over a large, a lot of details, because Daniel wasn't trying to tell us at that time all the details. But I want you to know the details of what happened in those many years before this story jumps on the scene. What took place? So let's rewind a little bit. After Nebuchadnezzar has his come to God moment and he tells the world that he, that he recognizes God and glorifies God, Nebuchadnezzar would go on to live many more years and he would reign over Babylon as well as he ever had. But while he's continuing to reign over Babylon, other powers begin to consolidate and merge in the world and one of them was the mighty Persian Empire. 
and Persia began to grow strong. And as, as Babylon stayed in its glory, and Nebuchadnezzar lived out his life, eventually he died. He was honored magnificently and buried. After his death, a couple different kings took over the throne of Babylon. They didn't last very long. Internal fighting, lots of stories that don't matter for today. They just didn't last very long. A couple kings came and a couple kings went. Meanwhile, as Babylon is weakening, the Persian Empire is getting stronger and consolidating power. They're making deals with the Medes, who are basically recognizing the Persians are the big boys, but they're going to work together to do some conquest and make the Persian Empire strong. And the king of Persia's name was Cyrus. Cyrus the Great, he was was an ambitious man. And he decided that he was going to set his sights, not just on conquering and expanding his empire, he was setting his sights on the mighty city of Babylon. Because if you could take down the big boy, you're the big boy. So he gets his army together and they begin to march towards Babylon, conquering cities along the way and marching with an enormous force to the outer walls, eventually to get to the outer walls of Babylon. Meanwhile, in Babylon, the new king following a couple of different kings after Nebuchadnezzar. The new king of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, of Babylon was a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the king of, uh, at that time and um, he realized that the, the, the Persians were coming to fight. So Nabonidus decides he needs some help so he appoints one of his co-regents to kind of step up to power almost equal with him and help him run everything because he had to go out to fight war. So he appointed one of his co-regents, whose name was Belshazzar, to step in the role as co-regent and help him lead the, the, the kingdom of Babylon. And then Nabonidus took his armies, didn't leave, left some of them behind to defend the city, but took a large part of his army, walked out of the city and went the distance to stop and meet the Persian Empire and King Cyrus to fight that battle before they arrived at Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to defend the glory and honor of Babylon, and Belshazzar is going to watch over the city. As Nebuchadnezzar marches towards Cyrus, something amazing happens. The mighty Babylon does not win this time. The Persian army literally slices and dices through them like they're butter. And the Babylonian empire is wiped, the army is wiped out. Nabonidus is captured as a prisoner of King Cyrus. And they continue their march to the city of Babylon. When they arrive, they set up camp to put a siege on the city. But Cyrus knew something that, 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 that both he and Belshazzar in the city both knew. And that was that it was pretty much impossible to conquer Babylon. Babylon was pretty much impregnable. The walls were built so thick and strong and tall. The layers were so deep. The complexity of their operation was so, it was just, it was hard. And on top of it all, you couldn't just starve them out. They had a water supply because that city was amazingly built over the Euphrates River with the wall going down deep into it and allowing the water through it still. And they had water supply and they had, they had, it was just, it was amazing the, the resources that were in that city. And Cyrus knew it would be almost impossible to conquer it. And not only did Cyrus know that, Belshazzar knew that. By the way, you should know this about Belshazzar. Belshazzar happened to be the grandson of former King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of wives, had a lot of kids, had a lot of grandkids. He had a lot of grandsons. One of his grandsons was Belshazzar. Now, you, if you read in some of your Bible translations, it might say he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar was his father. That's just the way they talked. It was his grandson. 
So his descendant, his son. His, his one of the grandsons of King Nebuchadnezzar. And again, Nebuchadnezzar had appointed him to kind of co-lead. And then when Nebuchadnezzar got captured, Belshazzar's all that's left. So all of a sudden, Belshazzar's like, I'm the king. It's good to be the king. So he's now the king inside the city, and he looks out the walls and sees the Cyrus and the Persian army out there, but he knows their city's impossible to conquer. He's not scared. They have endless water supply. He looks out the city and he thinks to himself, those people out there will either starve and go home, get bored and go home, get lonely for their family and go home, or eventually the calendar goes long, they'll freeze and go home. We're okay in here. So to show that he was not scared, he decides to throw a big party, as you read about a moment ago, with a thousand people gathered together in this party to show that they weren't afraid of the Persians. They're celebrating inside. It was a show of strength. And this party took place, guess when? 589 A.D. In the month of October. Ooh, so here we are. So they're in this party. And it's a big party. Pick up the story in verse number two. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, or you can say his mistresses, or whatever you want to call them. He wanted to have a party inside that room. Now, this is a big deal because as Belshazzar's throwing this party, he's trying to show strength. He's trying to flex Babylonian muscle. And here's what he's doing. He's like, let's bring in the instruments that, that we stole from other nations that we've conquered and let's party with them to show that we are bigger than those nations are and show that we have been, we're, we're unstoppable. And he specifically asks for the instruments of gold and silver that, that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem. And that was significant. He specifically asked for those. I have a feeling because of Nebuchadnezzar's humility and his come-to-God moment that those were probably set aside and, and re- treated with respect. But Belshazzar has none of that. He's like, bring them out here. Let's bring out those, those things right there. My, my, fa- my grandfather honored that, but we're not going to bring them out here. We conquered those nations. We conquered those cities, and we conquered those gods. We'll bring those cups to the temple. We'll, we'll drink our wine and show that we're more powerful than any person or any god out there, and we're not afraid of the Persians. So they brought in these instruments to celebrate their power and their pride. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, so they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, from the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. In other words, they praised their little false inanimate object. So your God is an inanimate object. But they're like, yeah, that's what they worshiped. They worshiped the power of their wealth and their opulence, and their strength, and their might that could conquer anybody else's city or deity. And they celebrated with the temple instruments their power and their idols of those things. And that's when the story gets interesting. In verse 5, suddenly, whenever you see suddenly, that's a good time to gasp. Suddenly, (gasps) suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand 
writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand, the king himself saw the hand as it wrote. I'm going to stop here before we continue the reading the, the sentence. So all of a sudden they're in this party and it says the king noticed. He looks up and he sees, what is that? It looks like a hand, but there's no body there. There's, no, there's, no, there's just a hand. He maybe gets up from his seat, look closer, and people begin to look. What's he looking at? And they see this hand. And this hand is just there, and it's got its finger, and it's writing something on the wall. Like you and I might go to the wall and just like, just like we're going to write something, but nothing's there unless it's like glass with foamy. But the, the, but the hand, his finger, is writing on the wall, and it's leaving in the wall words behind it cutting through the texture of the wall and leaving a message. And the king sees it, and then people start noticing it, and someone maybe gasps out loud, and somebody else, a woman perhaps, shrieks out loud. Verse 6. The, his face, uh, Belshazzar's face, it turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Can you picture this? The color literally drains from his face. His knees are knocking together. He loses his balance. He's looking for this thing. He just like, he's so scared, he collapses. He, he loses his balance. He's just terrified, shaking, pale. It's a terrifying moment. Don't knock him now. Hey, don't crit- We would all be so afraid. This is a terrifying thing. The hand with a finger carving words into the wall. Look, this is scarier than the demon-possessed man two weeks ago sermon. Because in the story of the demon-possessed man, if you were with us, remember what happened was a bunch of people could overpower the demon-possessed man and put him in chains. Sure, he would break the chains and get away, but they could overpower him if they wanted to through a bunch of people together. But what do you do with a giant, with a hand? What do you do to the hand? Come on, guys. Let's attack. I mean, seriously, where's the rest of the person? That's terrifying. Finger carving into the wall. There ain't nothing you can do. They are scared to death. And so, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Belshazzar's got to figure out what to do. So he kind of gets up off his, off his collapse. He kind of gets, his, he's still pale. He begins to look around and say, okay, guys, um, I'm the leader here. <laughs> Whoo. Um, I want to know what those words meant because the words on the wall were words that he did not recognize. What do these words mean? So he says, call in our smart people. Call all the smart people in that we trust and have someone tell me what those words mean because I want to know what this, this hand, these fingers are writing on my wall. He says, then tell whoever can interpret that meaning for me that I will give him promotion. I will clothe them in purple. Apparently being clothed in purple was the rage back then. So if you want to like really look rich, apparently purple's the way to go. Clothe them in purple. I'm going to put a gold chain around their neck. And I'm going to make them the third most powerful man in the nation if they can interpret the writing on that wall. Well, they tried and no one could figure it out. And the king is nervous I measure the hand is still over there on the side going, mm, mm, I don't know. But he's over there wondering. And in verse number 10, it says this. But when, but when the queen mother, when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. Apparently she was not at the party. But she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be so pale. Apparently he was still pale all this time later. Don't be so pale. Don't be so frightened. She says, verse 11, there's a man. There's a man in your kingdom 
who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, he made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, he has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. And then she summarizes by saying it this way. In summary, call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Stop freaking out. You're the king. Call for Daniel. Let him help you out here. He'll tell you what's going on. So the king does. He calls for Daniel, and he does the same thing. Daniel, if you can tell me the words, what those words mean. I heard about you, but I forgot about you. But if you can tell me what those words mean on the walls, I will give you an outfit of purple and a gold chain around your neck. You'll be bougie, okay? And uh, that bling will be shiny. And, you'll be, and, and I, will, I will make you the third most powerful man in the entire country if you'll tell me what that words mean. And Daniel says to him in verse number 17, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts and give them to someone else. But I'll tell you what the writing means. <laughs> I love Daniel's attitude. He's like, nah. Look, Daniel was a teenager when he came to the city. This is like 50 years later. He's pushing 70 years old probably, right? He's like, ah, I'm not impressed with your money, your silver and gold and your purple outfits. Eh. Eh, keep your gold chain, sounds heavy. And your third most powerful nation, man of the nation? You're gonna make me third most powerful man? You're about to lose your kingdom, dude. That's okay. Give your gifts to somebody else, I'm okay. I'll just tell you what the writing means for free. You're welcome. Verse 18 he says, your majesty, and he's going to do a little history review, not long history. He's going to remind Belshazzar of the story that we told earlier about his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, your majesty, you're the most high God, the most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, honor, and glory to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill, and he spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor, and he disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was able to do whatever he wanted, wherever he wanted, because God gave him the chance to be that person in history. But Daniel goes on, verse 20. He says, but, but when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and was stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society and was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. And here he says it again, until, so we, saw, we saw this earlier, until he learned that the most high God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. By the way, that's good for us always to remember that God, the Most High God, rules over the kingdoms of the world. For all the anxieties and opinions and wrestlings we have in the world, the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. 
And then Daniel says to him in verse 22, this is a very pivotal statement. Daniel says, you are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this. This is so important. He's like, look, you knew that. You knew the stories. You saw the way that God was working in his life and he was kind of listening but kind of resisting. You saw that big ultimate moment where he lost his mind and came back and told the whole nation and wrote about it. You're his grandchild for crying out loud. You know what happened. You knew all of this. This was not a secret. You weren't in the dark. You could have learned from his example. You knew all of this, yet, yet you have not humbled yourself. You knew it, yet you refused to humble yourself. Verse 23, he explains, For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven, and you have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. Like, really? That's what you're doing? But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and who controls your destiny. In other words, while you're honoring your wealth and worshiping your wealth or whatever else, you're ignoring the one true God, the, the God who made heaven and earth, the God that you had a chance to see through, your, through, through Nebuchadnezzar's reign as he brought in the captives, captives. You had a chance to encounter Yahweh and to worship him, but you've not honored him. Instead, you've taken the same arrogance that Nebuchadnezzar forsook when God got a hold of his heart. And he says to him, verse number 24, so God has sent this hand to write this message. And he reads the message. The word said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And he said, I'm going to tell you what they mean. Verse 26, we pick up the story. Mene means numbered. He says, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. You were just getting started. You had a party to show your strength. You had a long road in front of you, you thought. But God has already decided that, nope, your time is up. He's numbered your days and has brought it to an end. Verse 27, tekel is the next word. Tekel means weight. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. God has looked at you and assessed your leadership and, your, and, your, and the kind of person you are, and you failed the test. You've not measured up. Verse 28, parson. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. You're losing it all. What's the king do in this moment? Like he said, bad, he said a pretty, it started off like a you know, bad time. People are coming to fight. Then it's a party. It's a good time. And then there's a hand writing on the wall. It's a bad time. But then there's interpretation. That's a good time. But then the interpretation is not good. It's a bad time. I mean, this is a whole thing happening here. What does the king do with that message? Oh, that's what the hand is telling me. That's what the finger is carving into my wall. Oh. Well, the king does what he promised to do. Verse 29 then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I can picture Daniel standing there like, okay, I'm going to go back to my room now, see you guys later. I mean, okay. Belshazzar says, here's your prizes. And Daniel leaves. But here's what's interesting. 
while all of this was taking place, the Persians had arrived. This party didn't happen overnight. They had been gathering these thousand people. They'd been preparing the food. This feast had been going on for days. By the time this party was incepted and took place, and by the time that the people had um, managed to get drunk, and by the time that they brought in the temple of God's uh, utilities, by the time that Daniel showed up to interpret the, to interpret the writing, all this time they're going on inside the city walls. Guess what's happening outside the city walls? Cyrus, the king of Persia, brought in a team of his engineers. Very smart men who were able to, to get down into the Euphrates River that poured against the city, into the, through the city. And they built, and they were able to divert through their engineering to divert some of the water of the Euphrates River away from the city, way downstream from the city so they wouldn't see what was happening. They built this thing and they diverted some water away and pushed it out into a swampy area. And then as it it just, all it managed to do is lower the water a little bit on the city wall. But it made it low enough to be possible that it could spend a special group of, of trained soldiers, kind of like Navy SEALs for us today, special elite soldiers who would go down, swim under the wall of the city, come up the other side and stealthily sneak up, kill the guards watching the gate, and before the city could respond, begin to open the gates of the city so that the army of Persia could rush in. And that very night, the mighty impenetrable Babylon was taken and was conquered. And in verse 30, it says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And that was it. Belshazzar forgot what God had told his grandpa. Belshazzar forgot that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world, and he gives them to anyone he chooses. And unlike his grandfather who humbled himself and would later say, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Belshazzar refused to be humbled and determined to be proud and defiant against God and against everything in this moment. And that October day, it all came crashing down. I'm going to give you a couple thoughts in my mind real fast before we give a closing verse. I'm not going to put these thoughts on the screen. I'm going to let that verse sit on the screen here instead. I'm just going to share a couple thoughts real quick for me, and then I'm going to give you one verse, and we're going to be done. But I want us to remember some important truths today as we wrap this thing up. I don't think you need a lot of details today. Honestly, if you just go home and remember the story, the story will speak for itself in our lives, I hope. The story is the kind of story that can stick with you if you let it. But let me give you a couple of quick thoughts. First of all, God has given us all that we have. All that we have comes from God. You may, not, you may not have been given a kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, but God has given us all that we have. If you're born in a developed nation, one of the richest nations in the world, if we're here today or online today and we have the capacity to get out of bed, and function with our bodies and, and you know, carry ourselves into a new day, come to church. I have the strength to stand up here and speak words and we have all the chance to hear what God is saying to us and comprehend and have the cognitive ability to listen and discern. And cars that we drove here and houses that we live in and maybe a family that we have around us and jobs and food that we can prepare and eat. Everything we have, maybe it's not a kingdom, but all that we have, God has given us all 
that we have. And we would just be so wise to always remember we are some of the richest people in the world globally of the 8 billion people on this planet. And God has given you all that you have. Second of all, I want to say this. Remember, our time is limited. Time is short. I don't know how long we have, but it's short. You could be like Nebuchadnezzar where you live a nice full life or like Belshazzar where it gets cut extra short. But even if we live long lives, the older we get, the more we know that it's flying by. Our time is limited. And in the end, our money, our wealth, and our status cannot save us when this race is over. God has given us all we have. Our time is limited. I want to say this next. God has a plan. God has a plan. And that plan will be fulfilled no matter what part we choose to play in it. God gives us that beautiful thing called free will to choose to follow him or not. But he's also still sovereign over all. His plan will be fulfilled whether we choose to play our part in it or not. He's still over all. You know, so many times in our life, because we have so much, because we are so well off, we get like Nebuchadnezzar. We think we're entitled to the stuff we have, don't we? We think, I I deserve what I have. And so we tend to pray prayers contrary to the Lord's prayer, the model prayer. We tend to kind of pray. We wouldn't say it, but we kind of act like our prayer is, Lord, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth. Like, you're there to answer my request and keep blessing me because I deserve it and that's why I have it. And we wouldn't say that, but we kind of act like God's there at our beck and call. And if he doesn't, then what good is he? And yet God is saying, actually, I'm my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I have a plan. I've put you here and I've given you all that you have and I've given you your time and the time is limited. And I've put you there. And his plan will be accomplished no matter what we do. And let me say this also. Those who oppose God will never overthrow him, but they will find themselves to be overthrown instead. Be very careful to stand against God There's no win in that seat. He is able to humble the proud. I want to give you one more verse. Sometimes I give you a closing, like a sticky statement to to take home with you. But I'm not going to give you one from me. I'm going to give you one from Peter. Remember Peter? New Testament Peter? We saw him last week. He kind of walked on the water with Jesus last week. Peter, the disciple. Peter wrote several letters. Two of them are included in our New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. There's others also. Peter, in 1 Peter, makes a statement that I want us to take home with us today in light of the story. He summarized it this way. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That God opposes the proud. He, when people exalt ourselves in pride, God opposes and pushes that down. But, but he gives, when we humble ourselves, God lifts that up. He gives grace to the humble. Don't forget those words. Nebuchadnezzar learned them. Belshazzar never learned them. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then Peter adds this. So, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. The secret is simple. God is not trying to be sadistic or cruel. He just wants us to remember that he, he knows best. He wants best. He's a loving God. And when we say, no, I know, but I, we're going to cause trouble for ourselves. And like Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to mistreat others. But when we humble ourselves and say, I'm not God. I don't have this. God gave me everything I have. God's given me my time and my stuff and everything. And I humble myself to his lordship as a good and loving and caring God who knows what's best and wants what's best. 
when we give him his place in our throne and we humble ourselves, he always lifts us up in honor. It's always better to humble ourselves than to be humbled. So humble yourselves. And that's our story for the day. And I hope that we'll remember it in that verse or two from Peter because, boy, what a, what a testimony of the power and trust and the ability of God who's given us all we have to order our steps better than we ever could.